Hello, everybody. I'm Charles Clace, uh, partner in the M&A group at Kemp Little. I'm delighted to have on the panel with me today Manish Madvani from the investment bank GP Bullhound. Manish is one of the founding partners of GP Bullhound, and since 1997, he's executed on M&A deals involving some of the best-known global internet companies. As such, he has some unique insights into current trends. Also with me is Andy Mosby, a partner of mine in the M&A group. Andy will be talking about due diligence, warranty cover and integration. Finally, I have with me Mike Cashman, a tax partner at Kemp Little. Mike will be talking about some of the tax issues that frequently arise on internet M&A deals. What's really interesting about the people we have on the panel today is that they've seen internet M&A deals evolve over a number of years and have worked on all parts of these deals, from the sale process and strategic positioning of the target company to structuring due diligence and integration. I've asked them to share their experiences and insights on some of the issues and trends we're currently seeing on internet M&A deals. Firstly, I'll hand over to Manish. Thanks, Charles. So the, um, the title, The Good, the Bad, and the Obscenely Ugly. Michael just asked me if that was a reflection of the panel, which it's not intended to be, <laughs> but we'll leave it to you to make your own judgment and assign a title to each, each member of the panel. Very quickly, just a bit about GP Bullhounds. So we are an investment bank that is focused exclusively on technology and media, um, private placements, mergers and acquisitions, and the internet has been our lifeblood. We've really been doing a lot of deals in the internet sector. Um, when we set up, we were looking to do what Facebook were doing in their sector, which was really shake up the sector and, and bring new services and a new culture to the industry. Unfortunately, we haven't been as successful as Facebook, but we do like to think we've bucked the trend. So we, we are now the largest bank focused in our sector in Europe. So on to internet M&A. Um, I guess the... One of, the, one of the key themes we've seen throughout its evolution, and we have been banking in it and investing in it right from the start, is that it's a wavy space. And a lot of trends, a lot of hype, a lot of high valuations, and then a lot of uh, misery when the, when the hype turns to, um, to some losses. And if we look at some of the waves that have happened recently, the most, if we look at video sharing, there was a lot of hype around that. Initially, it started with a lot of viral growth in 2007. So everyone got very excited that it was going to revolutionize the media industry and it was very cheap to acquire users and YouTube and quite a few others grew at a rapid rate. But as it, as it started evolving, then the videos that got uploaded, everyone was questioning the quality of it. And then a lot of legal concerns came through, a lot of lawsuits and people questioned whether you'd ever actually be able to make money from it. So, YouTube then evolved as the platform of choice and it became extremely hard for anyone else to have a, have a viable claim to a business model. The same we're seeing in, in local group buying. So Groupon is in the press a lot. At the start, everyone thought, thought this was the holy grail. I mean, it, it leveraged crowd buying, it leveraged getting the local merchants in place, it leveraged all of the nice things about the internet. But then as it, as it grew, people were concerned that Groupon is just killing everyone, living social, were killing all the other small providers and just acquiring them. Really. And now if you look at the press and the IPO, I mean, everyone's questioning whether the business model actually works. So Groupon's IPO prices had a big hit. The, the business model is in question. 
are the merchants going to keep using the service? A lot of customers have had a bad experience. Uh, again, a lot, of, a lot of questions, and that wave seems to be coming to an end. There's a few companies out that are trying to raise capital with pretty serious growth and some profits even that are finding it extremely hard in that sector. So it is a, it's a wavy sector that creates, I think, opportunities for entrepreneurs, but it also creates issues for, for lawyers and, and for ourselves. And if we look at, if we look at the, um, the IPO stars, I, I guess one of, the, one of the key things that we do recognize, though, one of the tr benefits of being a wavy space is if you get it right, it is a winner-takes-all strategy. So if Facebook, for example, there's a lot in the blogs and kind of the, um, the TechCrunch news that Accel partners through their $12 million investment could return at the latest valuation on the secondary market, they'll return 20 times the entire fund from their one 12 million investment into Facebook. But if we look at what's been happening recently, a lot of hype last year about IPOs and Zynga, Yandex, Demand Media, a lot of really well-known internet companies managed to float. The IPO markets opened up again. And I think this is key for the ecosystem. It, it managed to create some liquidity for investors and entrepreneurs that had been in, in their companies for a long time. But if we look at the performance of those, so this is all rebased, and the numbers are effectively showing the performance post the flotation, and the, the time axis is on the bottom. You'll see the only one that's in positive territory since its float is LinkedIn, which is up 50% on, on where it floated. All of the others, including Zynga, Yandex, Pandora, Demand, are all struggling below their, below their flow price. So that, that market is questioning whether they, they, were, they were limited, there was a limited float which pushed up demand and the price. Um, but people are watching these stocks like a hawk to see if they will deliver the, the sorts of numbers that they need to deliver to justify pretty strong valuations and multiples. And this is just a case study of, of how it is that winner-takes-all game. So back here in June 2008, there were a lot of social networks and a lot of regional social networks. I think people had accounts on, on many different ones. And you'll see the full list there. So it was Facebook. MySpace was the first winner, if people remember how successful that was. And then News Corp acquired it for a huge valuation. Skyrock, which was very popular, Studivized, so a few of these were regional players. Bebo, which was acquired for close to one billion by AOL. All of these players were, were jostling for, for leadership. And then if you look at what happened, slowly Facebook. Facebook was 24% of the total users in 2008. If you fast forward to 2010, end of 2010, it was 70%, and now it's much higher than that. So the, the, the time and time again, you see this with the internet sector that the winner takes all. There's not really room for 10 players in a sector. It often, it often reduces to two, maybe three at, at the most. So if we talk about M&A as a whole, I mean, pretty negative trends overall. Mostly, if you look across sectors, a lot of sectors have been pretty badly hit over the past 12 months, so the stats have been, uh, have been bad. A few sectors are supporting that, and... Digital media, internet and mobile is one of those sectors. So if you look at 2010 to 2011, it's slightly up at around 2 billion. This is in European headquartered private companies. 
Um, the average transaction size is reducing, and I think that's a function of, of the market. People aren't willing to bet the farm. People aren't paying huge multiples. They're still paying strong multiples for internet businesses. Um, but they're looking to de-risk and, and not lose their job by making the wrong decision. And then just looking at the who are the active buyers, uh, maybe a bit too small for some of you, but Google is, is the most active on a global basis. They've, they've completed five transactions. Rakuten, which is based in Japan, and this is showing what people have spoken about for a long time, the, the power shifting from the US to Asia. Um, we haven't seen it on a consistent basis, but there are some powerhouses in the internet sector like Rakuten, like Baidu, that are now getting significant audience and the reserves to really compete with the big US companies in acquiring the, um, the best companies in Europe. And then further along, you're seeing Facebook, Twitter, Groupon, eBay, and then local media houses, so Telegraph, have, have made two acquisitions. So one of the things we are seeing from this, which links back to the IPO slide, is, and something Charles and I were touching on briefly, was a few years ago, you would only, if you were selling an internet businesses, you'd look really at the um, top five US internet groups, IAC being on that list, and then the usual suspects. Um, and then you'd also look at the media groups in the local territory. Now, if you map out the categories, and it's, it's an interesting exercise, you get seven or eight categories in each sector. So you're seeing in e-commerce, for example, you'll see the traditional retailers, you'll then see internet players like Vont Privé, like Gilt Group, some of the companies that have managed to float are all acquiring the, um, the star internet companies, the next generation. And this is creating quite a nice market. Um, it means there's more competition, there's different sets of players, the internet groups are valued at 30 times EBITDA, whereas the traditional retailers are valued at six to eight times EBITDA. So you're able to get, there's quite a big difference in how they would value businesses and how they can value businesses. This is a, probably a more complicated slide than it needs to be, but the key message is the correlation between the valuation and growth of your company has returned. It went out of sync, actually, in the past few years. Now, though, the key is if you're not growing your profit at a sensible level, you're not going to get the strongest valuation. So you can see the companies that are at the end of the scale where they're growing their profit by over 70% year on year, they will be getting a valuation of north of 30 times their, their profit. So, and if you're much lower, you're, you're not growing, then your valuation will be more like five times your profit. One of the other factors that's driving M&A is there's a lot of cash. I mean, not just in the tech sector, but huge amounts of cash building up. If you look at the, um, the red bar is January 2012, sorry, 2012, yes. And the black line is January 2010. Um, the build up, the difference between this and this is how much cash they've added to their balance sheet over those few years. That's Microsoft, but the trend is the same for pretty much all the tech majors. And, the tech guys never like giving dividends. They'll always argue there's better uses for cash, um, R&D, new acquisitions, innovation. And this is what has supported the M&A market in, in the tech sector. And it will continue to do so. I mean, with, when, we, when we're speaking to the corporate development teams at some of the big majors, they are saying they're going to maintain activity and some of them are going to step up activity now. And then in terms of the, um, the landscape, so where are the deals happening? So this is looking from 2009 to the end of 2011. If you look at all the European companies, most of them, the sector that has been the most active within the internet sector is e-commerce, and that accounts for 60% of all the transactions. 
The next largest is gaming, gaming meaning um, more the social gaming like Playfish and Big Points, uh, casual games and multiplayer games. Mobile is starting to increase now, accounting for 11%. Uh, social networking, 7%. Dating, 1%. And then digital content, 5%. So you can see e-commerce is a big driver of all of this. How am I doing for time? You're good. And then going into a bit more detail on... Um, some of the drivers. So e-commerce, 60%, what's, what's forcing these guys to get active and go out and acquire? Um, the whole landscape is changing pretty dramatically. So if you look at the, the top of the, the box, that's traditional shops, so traditional e-commerce shops. Um, Kitty Care, which has been acquired by Morrisons, is traditionally selling baby goods online, but still they would pay a high multiple for it because they needed to get an internet presence. Then as we're moving down, you're starting to see more innovative e-commerce models come out that are really shaking up the high street, and some of the players are struggling to compete with them. So a few of you would have used Moonpig, a few of you would have seen the, um, the annoying TV adverts, but most people now are getting exposure to it. But effectively what that's bringing to the market is personalized e-commerce. So you can go onto their website, choose exactly how you want the birthday card, Valentine's card to look, Add a photo, add some sounds, add the message you want, and create the product exactly as you would like it. They will then do all the printing, the back end, the glossy stuff, and then ship that out within a day, maybe two days. Um, so giving the consumer extra choice, extra convenience. And a lot of, we know a lot of guys were bidding on that and interested to, um, to add that to their portfolios. <coughs> and you saw Photobox acquired that for 195 million. The other trends we're seeing, um, do people know the Vent Privé model or the um, Brand Alley model in, in the UK? No, no one. <laughs> so this is, um, this is a stockless model. So effectively, they'll sell designer goods online at a huge discount, so up to 70%. And they don't have to take any stock risk. They'll, they'll be selling the overstock of some of the... Um, of some of the big retailers, D&G, Dolce & Gabbana. So it offers the, um, offers the consumer a lot of, a lot of good price competition. Um, all these players have shaken up the high streets. They're growing from zero to a couple of hundred million in a, in a couple of years. And you're now seeing a lot of consolidation. News Corp acquired a stake in one of the players. eBay have just acquired a large player. Amazon have just acquired a large player. So again, different models with very efficient um, growth cycles that are, that are attractive to the retailers. And then, of course, the, the daily deal space, which is the, um, the Groupon area. And then the web, I'll just touch on this briefly, but the, the, the function of the web is shifting from being a search function, everyone used it for information gathering and finding things, to now much more of a social element. So people are using Facebook at a dramatic level. People are using Spotify, sharing their then sharing their playlists, inviting people in to add to their playlist. So it's really a much more connected um, internet presence now. And people are fueling that by putting in some large acquisitions. Private equity is playing onto that trend. And that's, that will see the next wave of deals that will come through over the next 12 months or so. And then mobile. Everyone's been talking about mobile for many years, but now the infrastructure is in place. The usage is phenomenal now. I think that the stats were almost 60% of Pandora and 50% of Twitter's traffic is now through the mobile device. So the audience has gone there, and once the audience goes, then the money will follow. 
And then the last slide is we're often asked, is the internet sector coming to its end? Is it too hyped? How much longer can the sector make money for entrepreneurs, for investors? If we look at the, um, the cycle, we do a lot of analysis internally to see where wealth is created, kind of what, what sort of cycle it's created over. So if you look at the first cycle, the mainframe cycle, which was predominantly IBM, and then you look at the PC cycle and then the internet cycle, three of the big cycles that have, that have happened over, over the past few years. The VC Ben Horowitz, which, who's a famous guy in the US, um, did this very good analysis where everything he noticed in all of these cycles was that most of the wealth was created in the last five to 10 years of the sector. They were generally 25 years cycles in, in total. So if you look at the, um, the mainframe with IBM, 23 billion created in the first 14 years. And then in the last 10, almost double that, or more than double that amount at 62 billion. 18 billion created in the first 15 years of the PC cycle in terms of market cap. Um, in the last 10, 1.2 trillion, so a huge jump. And if we look at where we are in the internet cycle, we're only 15 years in, 374 billion already created, but already the bigger amount has been created in a few years post that. So there is going to be, if, if the cycles are correct, there's going to be a lot of M&A and a lot of wealth created still in the internet sector. And that, that's all I had for you. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Manish. Um, so, uh, like Manish pointed out, we're still seeing most internet businesses exit by way of M&A rather than IPO, and many of the buyers are strategic corporate buyers. Um, Andy, uh, looking at the acquisition of an internet business from the pers perspective of a strategic corporate buyer, could you say a few words about some of the issues we're looking into from a diligence perspective, and also just how diligence feeds into the sale documents and the rest of the process? Sure. Um, can you pass me the clicker? Thank you. Um, I think given the, uh, the title of Manager Slides, if you take it in order, that probably makes me the obscenely ugly. Um, and given what I'm talking about, that's probably quite apt because due diligence is not necessarily the most well-loved element of a acquisition process. Um, it's certainly something that the sellers, if they've never been through the process before, um, can learn to hate over a number of months. Um, but unfortunately, it is also one of the most important because particularly for a buyer, it's <coughs> the one good opportunity to go in and understand what the business is that they're buying. Um, when we talk about uh, an online uh, business, then certainly the value within that business is going to center around uh, its platform, its customer base, its data, its IP, and its people. So there's no real surprise on the, the left-hand column up there of the type of things that are going to concern a buyer when they're doing the due diligence exercise. Uh, we go through this in some detail in the white paper that's been made available and I think will be made available after the, the sessions as well. So I'm, I'm not going to go through this in too much detail. Um, but it's worth looking at some of the key things that are unique for, for uh, internet businesses. Um, certainly on business models and metrics, it's important for the buyer to understand exactly what the business model of the, the target is and make sure that it's looking at the right metrics. Um, depending upon the business model and depending upon when the customer pays and what he's paying for, the important metrics may well differ. Um, Certainly registered users or eyes per page is all well and good, but actually one of the more relevant statistics will probably be 
the cost of getting a paying customer to that site and the amount of pounds that that customer then spends. Um, you're going to want to conduct investigation into the, the platform itself, not only looking at things like how stable and how scalable it is, but also, and we'll come back to this when we look at integration, about how um, compatible that is with your own platforms. Um, clearly, things like contracts, user terms, uh, when revenue can be recognized are going to be massively important, as well as making sure that the target owns and has the rights that it says it owns in order to be able to operate the business in the way in which it currently operates. Uh, employee retention is also going to be key. Clearly, loss of key employees uh, on a sale is going to affect the transaction, probably affect the, the value of that transaction. Um, there may also be then a leakage of confidential information or other know-how. And also consider the effect that that's going to have on the morale of the remainder of the team that's going to stay there. Um, and particularly on due diligence of internet companies, tax issues tend to raise their ugly head quite a lot. And Mike, do you want to say a little bit about those? Yeah, th uh, <coughs> sorry. Thanks, Andy. Um, the tax issues on the due diligence of an internet company are to some extent similar to the tax issues you find when you're buying any sort of business. Uh, a lot of the issues are frankly just the same. So what I thought I'd like to do is just chat about a few of the areas where, in the case of an internet business, uh, tax is a little bit different to the normal company you might look at acquiring. Um, the first one of these, and I thought I'd also just chat about some of the deals that we've done and some of the scenarios we've found ourselves in where we've had some interesting tax issues on various uh, internet acquisitions or disposals we've been involved in. And I think the first one is uh, the intellectual property. Uh, it tends to be quite important for a, uh, an internet company that it actually owns the IP or has a license to use the IP that underlies its business. And it's interesting to look at some of the deals we've done where it turns out that the ownership of the IP has given rise to uh, some quite interesting tax problems. We had one deal where the group of, a group of companies had developed some IP and they'd done it under a cost-sharing arrangement. Cost-sharing arrangement sounds great. Each company contributes towards the cost of the development of the IP then each company ends up owning a portion of the IP, some of the IP rights. When we started digging around in due diligence, we found that the cost-sharing agreement hadn't been drafted properly. And what you actually ended up with was one company owning all of the IP that was developed under the agreement. And it then entered into a transfer of the IP to the company that was being acquired. Uh, all sounds very good so far, but what that meant was that there was a substantial tax degrouping charge when the company that acquired the IP was sold out of the group. And that caused us a number of, uh, number of problems. Uh, on another deal we did, which was a similar, uh, a similar problem, in this case we were buying a company that, again, an internet, an internet company which had uh, IP, which was very important to it. And the sellers came along and said, yep, the IP was transferred in about five years ago when we first set up the business. That's great. Can we see the transfer documents? Uh, no, we don't have any. Okay. How was it transferred? Um, don't you worry, we did it. I'll write you a note now to say it was done five years ago. That's very kind of you. 
but can we have anything to justify the transfer five years ago? And it turned out that apart from one reference in a board minute where they said, we'd like to do this, there was actually nothing to say the, the IP had been transferred. Don't worry, we'll transfer it now. Uh, that would have solved the commercial problem, but again, when we bought the company out of the group, it would have given rise to a significant tax issue. And that deal was restructured as an asset deal because we couldn't get over this particular tax concern. And that is obviously a lot more expensive for the, for the seller in terms of tax paid on the disposal. Uh, another area from a tax perspective is VAT. Uh, internet businesses often sell goods or services uh, between countries. And it's important to make sure that the VAT is being correctly applied in those circumstances. And in circumstances where, for example, they're selling goods across the internet and the goods are exported from the UK, the VAT is nil, but you need to satisfy certain record-keeping requirements. <clears throat> so again, it's important to ensure that all the record-keeping requirements are properly satisfied. And I think the third area I'd just like to touch on briefly is looking at... You must look at the structure of the business you're buying, the structure of the group itself. And you want to look and make sure that the, the structure's been correctly set up and the structure's been correctly operated and there are no hidden nasties floating around in a structure. You don't want a permanent establishment, a taxable presence created in a country where you don't expect to have one. And that happened on another deal. I, I seem to have a whole pile of deals with, with rather <laughs> nasty problems here. This isn't looking good. Um, don't hold it against me. Uh, there's a lot where we don't have problems. Um, but this one, buying a, buying a UK company that sold, sold across the internet. And we talked to them and said, do you have any, you know, subsidiaries, you know, et cetera, in other countries? And they went, no, we have nothing. But we do have a consultant uh, based in Australia. But don't worry, he's only a consultant. Ah, great. And when we started looking at the consultant, which of itself wouldn't give a taxable presence... Turned out that the consultant worked in an office provided by the target we were buying. Uh, turned out that he was signed up to the company bonus scheme. Uh, turned out he didn't have a written contract of consultancy. And technically that gives rise to a, um, a taxable presence in Australia. Uh, again, that's a difficult issue to solve. And... It just creates you know, an uncertainty, it creates risk, and that risk has to be addressed in some way. Um, and I think they're just a few of the examples that you know, came to mind of deals that we've done. And I think the bottom line really is simply that tax due diligence is important. And as I said, for internet companies, it's looking for those particular issues that are relevant to those companies, IP, VAT, structuring. I think that's what I wanted to say, Andy. <laughs> Good. Um, so that's dealt with the, the sort of left-hand side of the slide. Um, but what about the, the right-hand side that's up there? That's not something that you're going to be able to review in a data room. But it is important for a buyer to understand and really get a, a handle on how that operates within the target's business. Um, certainly around the sort of cultural differences. I mean, if the buyer is a great grey corporate behemoth, and he's looking to buy a, an internet company that's all table football and beanbags, you've got to kind of think that there will be a clash 
of businesses somewhere along the line and how to plan for that. Um, it's also worth looking or keeping an eye on how the sellers are actually operating their own due diligence exercise. Um, you know, the, the easiest way or, the, or the, the best way to do a due diligence exercise would be to lock management in a room for, for two months and make sure you've got all the information out of them. Unfortunately, that's not going to be very good for their business, and it's going to damage what you're actually buying. So if they are trying struggling with capacity issues, uh, and a lot of the, the task will fall down to their FD, it's almost look and see what you can do to, to support them in providing you with that information. So looking at the, the kind of key warranties, again, um, we cover off a lot of this as it applies to due diligence in the white paper, so I'm not going to look at this in any detail, but the legal concerns um, are up there on the slide. Um, particularly around metrics, it's going to be based on how the metrics are determined, what assumptions are they based on, are they reasonable, um, to what extent does any database that they hold have personal data contained within that. Um, even things like obscure email addresses or usernames could be identified as personal data if the target also holds information that, when put together, ties it to the identity of a person. So be careful about what you're reviewing and whether or not that constitutes personal data under the Data Protection Act. Um, then look for, for what purposes can that data be processed, can it be transferred out of the EEA. Uh, when we come to uh, IPR, then uh, as Paul mentioned earlier in the session, um, making sure that you are secure that any of your consultancy contracts or uh, employment agreements contain IP provisions so that the ownership is with the target business. Uh, and policies become pretty important as well in the, the land of internet companies. You'd expect internet businesses to have policies on things like data use, um, on use of the website, on confidentiality, uh, and various disaster recovery or employment things that could apply not only to the contracts that they have with users, but also to the contracts that they have with employees. This is a particular concern when you put this in conjunction with what their data looks like. It might be quite difficult actually running through uh, the data contained within a database, if it's customer data, to finally assess what terms and conditions those particular users actually signed up to and so how you can exploit that data post-completion. So we've looked at the sort of main two aspects of the due diligence exercise, uh, ensuring that the target has a value so that the buyer um, will continue to want to do the deal, and also uh, as a form of risk management to make sure that there are no surprises coming out of um, the exercise when you're buying the company. But the third way, and one which is... Um, mainly overlooked is using due diligence as a way of achieving successful post-completion integration. There have been a number of, of studies uh, from the US accountants firms where they've looked at deals done over the past five years and have tried to assess with um, the buyers as to how successful they felt those deals have been. And what's come back from those studies is that overwhelmingly the majority of deals done over the last five years in the tech sector, the buyer has said, didn't meet their level of success rating. Now, a lot of that could be because of the financial conditions over the past five years. A lot of that could be that the buyers have high and probably overly high expectations of what the business will do. But there seems to be some strong correlation between businesses where companies hadn't thoroughly thought through the risks of integration at completion and then how successfully 
that business has exploited synergies or been in the minds of the buyer. And you can take a look at the, the slide there and see some of the, the, the stats that come out of that, um, which show possibly why. I mean, when we talk about integration risks, we're talking about things like synergy risks, so um, what is going to be the complexity of that integration? It's going to be things like um, structural risks. So is there a culture clash? Is there a, a diversity of business models there? Um, the HR risks, so will there need to be redundancies or changes in the management structure? And then risks inherent to the project itself. Does anyone have to actually have the time to do the implementation properly? Uh, and when you look at the, um, the, the stats that are on the screen, what you can see there is in 40% of deals done, those risks weren't even evaluated until after completion. And at the, the, the final column, you've got there in over 20% of the cases, no formal integration plan is done until you're actually doing the integration. So it's no wonder that some of the um, acquisitions that the buyers have been asked about have deemed to have failed when no one's really assessed what those risks are or put in place a formal way of making sure that the process works until they've actually done the deal. So how to make effective integration. Um, I think to identify the integration risks early, um, ideally alongside the due diligence process, and set up teams with clear roles and allow avenues of communication between them. Um, the graph that's on the slide, uh, for people who can't see, shows uh, the different teams involved in a deal. So the deal team, the integration team, and the performance team. And rather than the, deal, the teams coming uh, one after the other with no overlap, where uh, the deal gets dumped in the laps of the integration team and said, you get on with it, uh, who then do the integration and then dump it in the laps of the performance guys who then have to carry this out. Clearly, it's going to be better for everyone concerned if there is some sort of communication between the two. The deal team need to talk to the integration team and so that the integration team can take any issues that arise out of due diligence into account when they're planning the integration. But also, that happens in reverse as well. Um, it's really important for the deal team to also get input from the integration team so that they know what to focus on when they're putting the deal together and what things are going to be important uh, when it comes to seeing what the company looks like post-completion. With an online business, the likelihood is that in a sale you're going to have some sort of earnout, and it's practically impossible to draft a sensible earnout provision if no one has considered what that business will look like post-completion. And that's something that, that Charles is going to talk about uh, a little bit after this. Um, it's also important to move quickly. Um, not too quickly. Uh, and the quote, which I'll read out, because I think it's a good one if people can't see it, I think is important because it goes to the heart of looking at what you're doing with that business when you've bought it. Um, it's focusing on the customers and don't lose sight of what's important. Uh, the quote comes from a, a CEO of medical products and services company who said, one of the best decisions we made in the merger process was to maintain our focus on customer service, even if it meant slowing down the rush to exploit synergies. If we kept customers satisfied through the integration process, we reasoned, it was worth delaying the savings for a couple of months. Um, and I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. Okay. <coughs> well, thanks, Andy. Um, I'm just going to quickly say, uh, to, uh, uh, mention a couple more issues which were uh, non-competes and earnouts, and I'll try and uh, mention them quickly. So just on non-competes. Um, internet businesses often have customers and inventory that's being sold around the world. And also these days you can set up an internet business almost anywhere in the world because you've got good broadband. 
given this, when we're dealing with buyers, they increasingly want the sellers to sign up to long, worldwide non-competes. Constructing such non-competes so that they're enforceable is pretty challenging, even ignoring any competition law implications. The reasons for this are twofold. Firstly, uh, as, I know that, as you're no doubt aware, a court will only enforce a non-compete to the extent necessary to protect a legitimate business interest. And secondly, there really isn't a lot of case law on such non-competes. Most of the case law relates to the employment arrangements. Therefore, a buyer of an internet business needs to think carefully about the legitimate interest it's seeking to protect through the non-compete. For instance, if it's customer relationships, are there actually strong customer relationships? If there are thousands or millions of customers, it's difficult to see what's being protected. If it's confidential information, this may have a pretty short shelf life. Similarly, if it's goodwill, how long does the buyer need to secure the advantage or the value it's expecting to receive, particularly when we're operating in such a fast-moving environment. Likewise, if the, the non-compete's worldwide, is this really justifiable? Where does the business have a material presence? If there are just a few customers in a particular country, can you really get the non-compete to cover that? So, really more questions than answers here, but they're important questions to be asked when you're looking at framing a non-compete in an internet deal, and it's very important that you do ask the questions. So uh, quickly turning to earnouts, um, often when a buyer is buying a fast-growing internet business, there's a valuation mismatch, and I know that Manish has had to uh, deal with many, many valuation mismatches. Um, often there aren't any meaningful historical financials uh, to base the valuation off. Um, this can result in part of the purchase price being paid as an earnout. Constructing an earnout that works for everybody is very challenging, and I think Andy made that point earlier, and there are a lot of inputs that go into it. The buyer will want to have a metric for the earnout that captures the value of the business to it. This could be something like profit, like most earnouts you see, or it could be something different, for instance, active users. Uh, we've definitely seen that on at least one earnout. Um, whatever the metric the seller will the sellers are going to want some protections to enable them to achieve the earnout. This is pretty challenging for buyers, it delays integration, and the buyer really doesn't want to pay for the fuel that gets the sellers to the earnout. Uh, for instance, they may want, not want to uh, bring traffic to the seller's website, the target business website, because that will enable the sellers to max out on their earnout. No easy answers here. I mean, our experience recently is that the difficulties of dealing with earnouts has led to some uh, buyers trying not to use them and just having cash up front and looking at incentivizing the founders through employment arrangements. The, one other key thing for the sellers uh, in an earnout is just getting the tax right. So, Mike, could you say a few words about that? Yeah, I know. Um, I know we're running running a bit short of time, so. Despite my desire to tell you lots about earnouts, because they tend to make tax lawyers very excited, because there's lots of complicated tax issues involved, uh, I'll just try and keep it keep it short and cover a couple of the main points. Uh, two issues that really tend to come up in earnouts are ensuring the earnout structured so that the earnout payments are treated as sale proceeds and attract capital gains treatment, rather than being treated as employment income. And the second one is ensuring that uh, 
the sellers uh, get their entrepreneurs' relief. Most of the uh, people behind internet companies are entrepreneurs who are entitled to the entrepreneurs' relief, which gives them the 10% tax rate. On the first point, to uh, ensure that it's treated as sale proceeds, HMRC have helpfully produced some guidelines as to the factors they like to see. And the factor which seems to cause most of the problem is that as a buyer, you want to tie the current sellers into the business. And to the extent there's an earnout, you want to make sure they continue to be employed during the term of the earnout. HMRC say that's fine, provided that the term of the earnout isn't longer than the term needed to protect the value of the business you're acquiring. Now, while they have usefully provided that guidance, they provide absolutely no guidance into telling you what is an acceptable period of time. And I think from my experience, you tend to find that a two-year earnout is fine. A three-year earnout uh, for people business tends to be okay. If it's four or five years, you start to get concerned that it's a bit long to be looking at protecting the value of the business, and you then increase the risk that it's treated as employment income. The difference between uh, employment income and capital gain is if you get entrepreneurs relief a 10% rate of tax versus possibly 52% with the NI plus the employer's NI as well. So the, different, the difference is, is quite important. Um, the second point is just how earnouts are taxed generally. And for those of us who can go back a few years, you recall that most earnouts used to involve loan notes with the um, sellers receiving loan notes for their earnout payments, which they'd cash in six months later. And they do this to get a rollover and further payment of their tax. Uh, with the onset of entrepreneurs' relief, what you tend to find these days is most earnouts are cash earnouts. And what happens there is the seller values the earnout, pays his tax up front, gets his entrepreneurs' relief, a 10% tax rate, and then to the extent he, the earnout pays out a little bit more, he pays tax at that point or he gets a refund. Now, why it's important to get the cash earnout is that if you take loan notes, you need to satisfy the requirements for entrepreneurs' relief at the time the loan notes mature. So that's some point in the future, you need to be uh, happy that you're going to hold 5% of the shares in the company and continue to be employed for the 12 months prior to your loan note paying out, which in many cases, A, can't be guaranteed, and B, an acquirer would like to buy 100% of the company. Uh, the taxation of an earnout and the valuation of the earnout itself is, can be quite complicated, and Unfortunately for me, we seem to have run out of time for me to explain all of that. <laughs> I, can see, I can see the look of disappointment etched on everyone's face. I'll hand back to you now, Charlie. Well, um, I'd just like to say uh, thanks to my panellists. Uh, we'll be around afterwards if you want to uh, ask any questions. 